0: I'm uh starting today on just a little three-part series cuz I've decided to stall till the right state students are back to uh continue the Kingdom of God students or Kingdom of God series. So, you can go ahead and start recording uh, Jordan. Um today we're starting a, th- a little three-part series called Old Testament Optimization. I'm just basically saying uh how to get more out of reading the Old Testament and Uh, Today, chapter 1, I'm going to give us three, I'll probably give us four actually, because I may just give you one verbally, Uh, but three ways to get uh, more out of the Old Testament by uh, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, you might know that the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures, and a uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness of Jesus. John fifteen twenty six. When the Holy Spirit comes, He'll bear witness of me. First Corinthians twelve three. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons I emphasize being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and uh, and I think the whole accompanying gift of speaking in tongues is is really important part of it, and so forth, is because as you flow in the power and realm of the Spirit. God will fill you with the mysteries of God, which uh, point to Jesus. And, uh, will, and Jesus will become more intimate, more real to you. So I want to start by just reading some introductory verses that, uh, that Jesus uh, talked about. After his resurrection, in two different appearances to the disciples in Luke chapter 24, on the day of his resurrection, he says these things, and I have them in backwards order. In his second appearance... When he appears to the disciples, uh, he says to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, he's saying, This is what I was talking about when I was discipling you these last three and a half years, that all things, uh, New King James says, Everything which are written about me, uh, concerning me, in some of the translations, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds. Uh, Most English translations say mind, but the Greek is, uh, minds plural, but the Greek is mind singular. Uh, He opened their mind, speaking of a mindset, or if you're familiar with the concept of paradigms, paradigms are a set of assumptions that academic communities, including the church, bring to their study of things. That kind of determine what questions you'll ask, what you'll see, what you'll perceive, and so forth. And so what Jesus is doing is he's changing their mindsets about their understanding of the scriptures, so that they will see him more completely in the scriptures. Paul addresses the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says that a veil light over the hearts of the children of Israel and over their minds, over their eyes. Uh, so that they could not see Christ, but the veil is removed in Christ, and so um, uh, a ministry of the of the Holy Spirit post resurrection, uh, post Pentecost, is to help us see that uh, some things about Christ. And one of them he he mentions right here. He opened their minds that's to understand the scriptures, and he said, "Thus it is written that the Christ or the Messiah would suffer." Etc. Uh, Luke 24, when he's talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets are spoken. Many of the mindsets about scripture that were, that were present in Israel during the time of Christ basically closed their minds to believe and made their hearts slow to understand all the prophets had spoken concerning Jesus. And he says, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted or explained. uh, I'm combining here uh, the English Standard Version, New American Standard, New King James. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, just to give you a little key, if you notice, I list the New American Standard first and the English Standard first, uh, respectively on the first and second scriptures, because the way I'm doing it here is I'm working off uh, whatever is the first one listed, and then the the words in brackets uh, are the other translations. So, um, one of the things that I wanted to point out is the Greek word grapho, which is the verb, and graphe uh, is the noun form uh, for the scriptures. And uh, this, this word can mean three things in ancient writings, but it means primarily two in the scriptures. In ancient writings in general, in Greek writings, it can mean just the writings. But when it's used in the scripture, it specifically means the scripture. And in most cases, when used in the New Testament, the context means the what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, which would be better named the Hebrew scriptures, because the old what we call the Old Testament didn't start till Exodus nineteen, and the Old Testament scriptures, uh, what uh, as we call them, are really the Hebrew scriptures, and they should include the whole of the of the of what we call the Old Testament, Genesis especially included, and so. Um, however, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, when he refers to Paul's writings as Scripture, he's basically including the New Testament writings and the Old Testament writings as Scripture. And, uh, but in most cases, when you see that word in the Old Testament, uh, or when you see that word, I'm sorry, in the New Testament, because the New Testament was in the process of emerging, they're referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. So when Jesus is saying that he wants them to see everything concerning himself in the scriptures, he is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, in the days of Christ, the Hebrew scriptures uh, were called Tanakh, and that's basically an acronym uh, that has to do with the prophets. Uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings, in that order, and they would have considered what we call the law and the prophets a little bit differently than we would. They would include in the in the prophets, uh, they would include what we call the twelve historical books from Joshua to Esther. They would include those in the in the uh, as in the prophets and uh, in the writings generally refer to the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and so forth. Now, it's not exactly that tight because there's a couple of books that go under the writings that are in the historical books and so forth. But in general, what Jesus is saying is all the major areas of the Hebrew Scriptures have to do with me. The law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, all of it has to do with me. That's really important to see. That's what he's saying primarily in Luke 24. So he's saying, if you really want to, if there's something in your heart which every born again Christian should have, every born again Christian receives a new spirit from God, the Holy Spirit, who came to bear witness of Jesus, and you have a love for Jesus and a desire to know him, to know all about him uh, and to know him, which is different. There's different Greek words for knowledge, but they boil down to to know him scripturally, theologically, intellectually, and to experience him spiritually and practically in your character and in the power of the spirit working in your life. So that's note number two. Note number three is that he opened their mind, and this involves two things. Both the Holy Spirit's illuminating Christ to us, which is why any encounter, uh, that's why I emphasize the baptism in the Spirit, because any encounter of getting filled with the Holy Spirit that causes you to have a greater presence of the Holy Spirit in a more tangible, concrete, uh, consistent, uh, ongoing way will also spill over into helping you see Jesus in an experiential way more fully all the time. But secondly, uh, the Holy Spirit came to lead us and guide us into all truth, and that includes the changing of mindsets or paradigms. And just like in the days of Christ, we have a lot of mindsets in current contemporary biblical Christianity that actually reduce the scriptures to less than they really are and blind our eyes to much that the scriptures are saying, and particularly with regard to Christ. Christ. So, uh, I don't have a lot of time to develop these examples, but when Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer, one of the things, I make a note of that, circle it something, write some notes in your margin, look for all throughout the New Testament, the over and over and over again, the Gospels and the Epistles point out that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer to enter into his glory. Now this is especially emphasized in Isaiah, but it's emphasized throughout the whole Old Testament. And it was against the mindsets of the present day. The Israelites had this idea, the reason they constantly rejected the real prophets and even stoned and killed them, uh, and they constantly liked the false prophets because they liked the false prophets that said, uh, everything is fine in Zion. Remember when it says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion? Uh, They liked the prophets who said, God will bless you. God will prosper you. Uh, He didn't put any sanctions on the covenant. There weren't any conditions on the covenant. God will surely bless you. And Israel could never believe the prophets when the prophets were saying, unless you repent of your idolatry, unless you repent of your many gods and your Baal worship and your Asherah worship and, and all the compromises you're making, unless you uh, become my representatives as you're supposed to be to bring my presence and, and my ways to the nations, I will discipline you. And that discipline will include uh, military conquest and exile. And they could never, Israel could never believe that. And so they could never fully receive the words of Moses, Deuteronomy 28 and so forth. They never could believe Elijah or Elisha. They never could believe Jeremiah or any of the other prophets. Uh, And so uh, one of the things that's kind of an interesting fact of religion is that even in today's day, many Bible-believing uh, Christians w- will reject wholeheartedly many of the ideas uh, of both the Old Testament and the New Testament while, uh, in, in, while holding to prophets in the past. They could receive God's word of, that somebody said a, a few centuries ago, and that's why they built the tombs of the prophets and honored them. And Jesus just didn't let them get away with that. He said, "You know, you build the tombs of the prophets, but that you in so doing, you testify that had you been there in that day, you would not have received them either and so um, the the hardest of all the concepts about the Messiah that they had to that they could never get past." was they would say, how could this be God's son if such incredible judgment and wrath was poured upon him, if he suffered so much? God would never let us suffer if we're his people. And that's a very popular message today in the prosperity gospel. There is not a theology of suffering. But I I will tell you that God intends for you to to. Have a fellowship, a full participation in the sufferings of Christ. The Scriptures declare that over and over again, including the New Testament Scriptures. And suffering is a normal part of Christian experience. It's not popular today. It won't sell books. It won't sell CDs, and it won't pack out churches. You, uh, you know. You can almost suspect that if there's a large audience uh, that there's not a theology of suffering involved. That's not uh, true across the board because there are some large churches that have, a very, that have very fine messages, including uh, uh, scriptural paradigms that we're talking about that include suffering. Uh, secondly, they were slow of heart to believe. In the time of Jesus, there was a cessationist mindset similar to today that said, We don't want this much of the Holy Spirit. They were okay. They said, We know that God did miracles through Moses and Elijah, but who are you, Jesus? They didn't like that he was opening the eyes of blind men because that was confronting them with the the reality of their shallow, complacent, compromised religion. In as opposed to being in the center of God's will and God's purposes. And they did not like a guy that opened the eyes of those who were born blind. There's a significant reason why all the miracles that Jesus did are duplicated by Elijah, Moses, and so forth, Joshua, except opening the eyes of someone born blind. Uh, of course, um, in the outpouring of Pentecost. But... Um, The reason is, is because God was testifying that only Jesus can open the eyes of those who are born blind, which is all of us. If you do not come to Christ, you will never see. Unless you're born again, you cannot see or perceive the kingdom of God, John 3.3. So um, over and over again, Jesus rebukes the religious people of his day saying, you're slow of heart to believe. And he's quoting uh, there um, from Isaiah 29, 13, when he, and when Isaiah said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay, so we, ha- we live in a time when there's more lip service given to being Bible-believing, but probably less Bible-serious study and serious trying to live and do the Bible than maybe ever before among the people of God. So, um, example three was the idea of believing all that the prophets said. They had various schemes. They they had their own version of dispensationalism and cessationism, ideas which we'll discuss in the Kingdom of God series, I think around chapter 12 or something, concepts that hinder the Kingdom of God, but they had their own uh, ways of kind of explaining away a great deal of the scriptures, even while being... Very fundamentalist in their in in what they profess to believe about the scriptures. Now, Jesus and Paul both both specifically uh, rebut these reductionist mindsets that were current among God's people in in, in that day. Um, the The Pharisees themselves had their sensationism, and the, the God doesn't do miracles today, and God doesn't do these things today. The Sadducees uh, went one step further. They're very similar to what you would call mainline Protestantism today in the mainline Catholic Church, which says that God doesn't do these miracles at all. Uh, They they had a completely naturalistic mindset. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in miracles at all. And the Sadducees didn't have a philosophy that including changing people from the inside out, putting the axe to the root, so to speak, and, ha- and causing people to renounce and repent of who they were in their spiritual death and to be born again into spiritual life. They didn't. Their ideas were political. Their ideas were, we need more money for the poor, we need more cooperation with Rome. Uh, We need more programs. We need health care. We need uh, all these uh, ways of of, uh, addressing things in natural ways. And so they had kind of a supposed compassion for the poor, but not at the point of meeting their real needs, which are spiritual. So... With that introduction, I I will be developing that whole uh, point number one uh, a lot more on Thursday nights uh, come this semester. For those of you who go to the Rock Campus Fellowship Thursday night Bible study, we are going to look at how to uh, understand the New Testament by understanding the Old Testament. We're doing a survey of the New Testament, and we're going to focus for quite a few weeks on how to understand both testaments in light of each other. So I'm going to develop the thoughts uh, much better I don't have time to today. Today I really want to focus on three ways to see Jesus or the, uh, who is the Messiah or the Christos in Greek, Mashiach, and in, in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Um, and I'm going to use the same principles that the apostolic writings used. Okay, Jesus said that he would send them apostles and prophets some of whom they would persecute, and so forth. And those prophets by the Holy Spirit, those apostles by the Holy Spirit, would complete the prophets, and open up all of the understanding of the of both covenants, both testaments, both sets of scriptures. Now, um, one, I'm gonna quickly just give you one way that's not listed here, so I'm gonna give you four ways, it's, but it's not in your notes. <laughs> The first way that you can look for Jesus in the Old Testament is to understand this. There are basically four offices of people that God, by the Holy Spirit, raised up in the Old Testament. Okay, In the Old Covenant, as you read the Bible, you will see these four types of people. You will see some of them who are faithful to God and anointed of the Holy Spirit and do the same kinds of miracles that you see in the New Testament. They raise people from the dead. They speak the word of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They write the Psalms, the Proverbs, etc. Uh, uh, and you will see false uh, representatives and evil representatives of these four offices. The first is judges. God raised up judges uh, during the time of Joshua and Judges, prior to uh, raising up the, a, a full-fledged prophetic ministry, which he started by Samuel. Of course, Moses was a prophet. Joshua was a prophet, but uh, the the uh, the the ministry of a prophet in the ministry of Samuel first, and then Elijah second, Elijah thir- Elisha third begins to be a more specific ministry, and it's a ministry that Peter talks about that the prophets sought to discern within themselves, within the Holy Spirit that God had given them, uh, the uh, everything they could about Christ and the sufferings that he would enter into before he entered into his glory. Again, that theme of sufferings is over and over in the New Testament because the Jewish people could not believe that a Messiah would suffer. in, in the experience seeming defeat at the hands of the Romans and the religious leaders and the people. All three of those groups crucified Christ. The judges were raised up by God uh, to do the function sometimes uh, of of the, of the other three. Sometimes they were governmental. Sometimes they were bringers of God's word. They were prophetic. Uh, sometimes they were developed, gave, uh, governmental that is military victories and so forth, and uh, and sometimes they had a somewhat of a priestly function. Now the the office of the priest is the second office I want to talk about, and that precedes the judges. So the first office God raised up in the Old Testament is the priest, and we have the eternal priest of Melchizedek, which Christ is from, and then we have the priesthood of Aaron or the Aaronic priesthood. Um, and there's specific functions and roles for the priest. Then the prophets, they themselves kind of emerge out of the judge's ministry, but the prophets have a ministry of speaking forth on behalf of God. And they're not so much predictors of the future, except for they are promisers of the sanctions of the covenant. All covenants, if you remember the eight elements of covenant that we studied, all covenants have conditions. And in all covenants, the people cannot fulfill the conditions, so God himself dies to fulfill the uh, conditions. And um, the prophets call the people back to covenant faithfulness to their Lord and to his law and to his ways. And they promise blessing for doing so and exile and curses for not doing so. So the prophets were, were more representatives of Yahweh as covenant Lord than they were predictors of the end times or what's become fun today and sells books. The third office, so we talked about priests, judges, and judges was kind of a temporary office. The third office uh, was kings. Uh, Although God wanted to be their king, and in the time of the judges, uh, there was a loose federation, and therefore God was directly their king by his law in every city, and he would rule through the elders of that city. It was really a foreshadowing of the church. Each local city had its elders, and those those elders were supposed to know the Lord and to know his word and to execute uh, judgment on his behalf, and so forth. That's why, like Boaz, when he wants to marry Ruth and when he wants to redeem land and so forth, he takes his sandal, remember, to the judges, which was symbolic of saying, I want to exercise dominion over this area of land, every place that the sole of your foot treads, shall I give to you. And so um, the judges or the um, elders of each city actually kind of were the city council, they, they recorded the deeds, you might say, the title deeds, and, and they uh, enabled free enterprise business transactions to happen and so forth. And they adjudicated disputes and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So uh, Israel rejects eventually the direct kingship of God and basically says, we want a king like the other nations, You always see Israel coming into trouble as we come into trouble today. When we say we want to be like the people of the world. One of the major issues of Christianity of our time is we look too much like the world and we have too much of the world's values and too much of the world's goals and too much of the world's lifestyle. And they, the Israel wanted to be like the nations around them and they wanted a King. And so God, uh, eventually uh, allows them to have a king, and he actually uh, eventually raises up kings, and those kings are a foreshadowing of Christ the king. So there's the office of the king. Um, Priests, prophets, kings, what am I forgetting? Uh, Judges, priests, prophets, and kings. So I guess I've covered all four. So in the Old Testament, uh, no one was allowed to be all of those offices. Okay, Samuel tells Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, after they uh, wipe out the Amalekites and they have Agag the king of the Amalekites, and Samuel tells them that they are to utterly destroy the Amalekites, which is, he's basing that on something out of the law, where the Amalekites opposed Israel as they were in the wilderness. And so God said that he would have war against Amalek for all generations until he wiped them out. And Samuel 400 years later still knows that. And Saul's assignment is to utterly destroy. The Hebrew means to devote to destruction, That to put under the ban means to make a sacrifice to Yahweh of all the Amalekites, their land their their each their people well they were to take their land they were to kill all the people all the sheep all the goats everyone and and as an offering to Yahweh and Saul has a better idea he's like wait a minute why waste all this wealth and then so forth so he wants to keep the sheep and so forth and he uh, when And what we always do when we disobey the Lord, we always put a VRG around it, verbalized religious garbage. So he says, I saved the sheep. Uh, you might call it BS, but that's not church-like. But uh, so uh, we'll call it VRG, verbalized religious garbage, but it amounts to the same thing as BS. He And we do it all the time. Well, I didn't do this or that, what the Lord wanted me to do, and we have a religious reason for it. Right, So he says, I saved the sheep to offer to the Lord. Now, if you recall, he was not supposed to, uh, to celebrate the victory and, and to, to have the feast and the sacrifices and slay animals and so forth until Samuel got there. But Samuel delayed as a test. And Saul cared more about his reputation with the people than his standing with God. All of you will face that test at various times in your life, with your employers, in the church, and in various other venues, even with your spouse. And uh, Saul wanted to be honored in front of the people. And so as the people got impatient, they started to leave. And eventually Saul said, don't leave, don't leave, I'll do the sacrifice well he was the king he was not the prophet or the priest he was not allowed to do the sacrifice and god when samuel confronts him i wonder if he had had true repentance if maybe god would have preserved him and turned him back to the lord the bible doesn't make that clear but what he has is he has remorse not repentance so Samuel keeps making the case that you didn't obey because incomplete obedience is disobedience. And eventually, uh, he has to admit that he disobeyed, and that he didn't wait. Uh, he did it uh, for his status with the people and so forth. And God rejects Saul from that point on. Now, that seems like a lot. You know, he basically had a religious sacrifice, he, he, he was at church. He did the right things religiously, but he didn't obey the Lord. It seems like David, who committed adultery and then engaged in a cover-up that included murdering Bathsheba's husband, that, that seems a little worse, right? <laughs> but David is called a man after God's heart because he has true repentance. He admits what he did to Nathan the prophet. He takes full responsibility for it, and he repents, and God restores him. Now, I wish I could develop all that more. That's a whole teaching in itself, the difference between remorse and repentance. But what Saul cared about was his reputation in front of men. And that becomes clear because two chapters later, he builds a monument to himself. I hope to God we never have, a, you know, like if, if this church prospers over a few uh, generations and someday they'll have the Grecoise Chapel or the Grecoise Library. I Don't do that. <laughs> uh So, you know, bottom line is a a fourth way is is simply this. Jesus is the first person in the Bible who is judge, priest, prophet, and king. No other person in the Bible was allowed to do that or was that. And all the prophets and all the priests and all the kings and all the judges foreshadow Christ. So every prophet, priest, king in the, uh, in the Old Covenant or in the Hebrew Scriptures has object lessons about how faithfully they represented Christ or not. Many did not. So there, that one is no extra charge. So let's get to the three that are in your notes. So what I'm saying is when you read the Hebrew Scriptures, Look for judges, priests, prophets, and kings and understand that they are a foreshadowing of Christ. And to the degree that they represent Christ faithfully, they are uh, a great foreshadowing of Christ. But all foreshadowings of Christ, all types of Christ fall short. Because he alone is worthy of our worship and our praise because he alone obeyed in all things. All right, so let's get into three other ways. Number one is that is fulfilled prophecies. Now, you'll often hear that Jesus fulfilled about 300 prophecies, uh, but it's more like 3,000. Uh, because they're basically using a narrow principle that developed from the, between the 1890s and 1920s that I can't get into, but it basically is the idea that if something is not specifically stated, you can't use the principles that the apostles use for interpreting this, the Old Testament scriptures unless it specifically says so. And that itself is a specifically wrong hermeneutic or wrong way to go about things. The apostles, all of, all of them had to rethink their entire view of God once they encountered Christ, once they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, once they were commissioned, they had to rethink Christ through the whole scriptures. We see Peter doing so in his famous Acts 2 sermon that John did a wonderful sermon about. And if you want to develop the ideas that I'm developing today better and, th- and more thoroughly, go back on our podcast and listen to John's series called Christ in the Old Testament. And specifically listen to uh, what's called Part Zero, uh which is using the, the book of Acts uh, chapter 2 to show that, that God made manifest or made it clear that Christ, that Jesus was both the Lord, that is God with us, Yahweh with us, Adonai with us, that he was God amongst his people, and that he was Christos or Mashiach. Uh, so then that becomes a principle for seeing that all through the Old Testament, that Jesus is the prophesied Christ. He's the prophesied Messiah. He's the prophesied God among us. Emmanuel, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and he shall be God with us. Emmanuel. That's what we celebrate at Advent, which we just did. So um, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 is very important along this line, where it says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied that the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. What were they searching? Who were, where were they searching? The scriptures and the Lord himself, the spirit of God within them. And they were seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but us, in the, these things which have now been announced uh, to you through the those who preach the gospel, that is the apostles, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. The great the great insights. There are all kinds of treasures in this earth. It's wonderful. The Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Uh, God promised uh, those who left houses and so forth. There's all kind of treasures in in life. What the scripture makes clear, looking intently into the person of Christ and seeing him in all the scriptures, that is the one great treasure you can't live without. There is no purpose to live apart from that pursuit. The world, apart from pursuing the knowledge and in, in the glory of Christ, is like zombies. They're dead men walking around with no real spirit or souls. And actually, life outside of the pursuit of loving God and loving Christ is, is a tragic thing. It would be better not to have been born than to have not loved Christ. Now, um, one of the things I do want to mention in this uh, in this fulfilled prophecy is we're going to look at five kind of ways as quick as I can. Oh boy, help me, Lord! This might this its outline might end up having to be two weeks. But um, as always, but uh, I pack I try to pack a lot of information for you. So um, most Bibles have a way that they separate quotes from the old testament i like the new american standards format because it does it in small caps and it really jumps out at you my second favorite is the uh new as the new king james because they use oblique type and so it jumps at you pretty well i'm i forget how the ESV does it but every bible has a way of doing that Read the, read the introduction and the notes to your Bible so that you know how your Bible does that, and look specifically as you read the New Testament for the quotes of Christ, and go back and read them. One of the things you should understand is that often when one of the apostles, of the writers of the New Testament quote the Old Testament, they are actually directing you to the whole section that that quote appears, so you need to go back and not only read the quote, but read the chapter that the quote's in. Sometimes you need to understand the book that's the quote, that quote is in to really get the point. So there are some direct quotes, and I, I, that's note four, by the way, is what I just said. They, so, for instance, in Matthew 7, 46, when Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's saying, read Psalm 22. The whole thing. Because the first part, like the tithe, a tenth is a representative of all. It's not like 10% of your money you give to God and the 90% is for you. The 10% of your money that you give to God is to say, God, you gave me life and the power to make wealth and it's all yours. How do you want me to steward all of this? When they quote the first verse of a, a psalm, uh, psalm 110 is the most often quoted psalm in the Bible. Seven times it's fully quoted in the New Testament, and it's alluded to another dozen times or so. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's saying, understand the whole Psalm 110 as prophecy of Christ and of his people and his kingdom. Psalm 2, which is quoted, why did the nations raise and the peoples devise a thing? That is about the kingdom of God in the lordship and kingship of Christ. And actually the first couple of psalms are given to us to understand. They are the the psalms 1 and 2 contain all the principles to understand all 150 of the psalms. And especially Psalm 2. Psalm well especially with Psalm 1 and 2. I, I shouldn't have said that. They're both both very important. So, um Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made that is God the Father made Him Christ who knew no sin that is He didn't have any intimacy with sin He never experienced sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in Him. Um, that actually doesn't appear in small caps because it's actually so loosely quoted from the Septuagint that it doesn't it's not exactly a direct word for word quote but it's Isaiah fifty three in a nutshell. it's the whole chapter all 12 verses of isaiah when you read uh first peter's uh 2:21 through 25 and second corinthians 5:21 it should tell you go back and read isaiah 53 the whole chapter so that's that's my uh, uh an important thing that direct quotes uh it, you would do well to spend some time on all direct quotes paul uh Goes in especially like in Romans nine, ten, and eleven, and Galatians uh, three and four. He's quoting all over the place from the Old Testament, and you really have to read the whole chapters that the quotes come in to understand the argument he's giving you. If you if you are having trouble understanding the book of Galatians, go back and read everything that's in small caps or oblique type, whatever, you're, and read all of them in their context, and you'll understand way better what he's saying in Galatians. Time's sake, flip over. Uh, this is the probably the most important of the five subpoints under the fact that that the that Jesus fulfilled all sorts of direct prophecies, like three thousand of them. Th- even the number three thousand is too low; it misses the point. Because here's the point: the people of Israel and the and the and the person of Christ are one and the same in the Scriptures. Everything uh, they're parallel on purpose. So everything that that Israel had uh, experienced, Christ experienced in a parallel analogy. So that's why he had to flee to Egypt, just like the Israelites had to go to Egypt and be there for 400 years and so forth, because out of Egypt I called my son. Who is his son? Is it Israel or is it Christ? It's both. Israel is is God's covenant people, his son. The church is God's covenant people, his son. And every child of God will be called out of Egypt. And every child of God will have to go through a wilderness. And every child of God will have to be baptized in the cloud of, in the, in the, uh, baptized through the Red Sea. We're speaking of water baptizing. And baptism in the spirit, the, 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 cloud, the pillar of fire in the cloud, and every one of us will have to eat manna. That is, we will have to have God's supernatural word of God provision because Christ himself is the manna, as he told us in John 6. Everything about Israel is paralleled in Christ. In Christ and Israel, you can't understand Christ if you don't understand all the history of Israel in the writings and the prophets. That's the key. If you say, oh, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. Well, everything that God did through his son Israel as a people, as a people group, he also did in his son Jesus. He is the covenant representative of Israel who died for Israel's sins. He is the savior of Israel, and he is the king of Israel. That's why God sovereignly worked through Pontius Pilate when they said, don't say the king of the Jews in, uh, was it four languages or three? Uh, say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate sovereignly says, what I've written, I've written. He is the king of Israel. He is, as John, oh, if you didn't hear... John's Christmas message uh the other night, please get the c d Please listen to it on the podcast. It was fantastic, and he basically showed how all these promises of the line of David he did that last Sunday as well uh all of these things uh we can we, you can't really believe in Jesus unless you really understand the Old Testament is what he because God was covenantally faithful to the covenants to David and to Abraham and so forth, and it's on that basis that we can believe that Jesus is covenantly faithful. Uh, I wish I could develop that. but you, So when you read your Old Testament, oh man, I'm out of time. Um, when you read your Old Testament, understand that there's a purposeful parallel between Jesus and, and uh in the nation of Israel. So uh, next week, we'll pick it up with the case laws, the laws and the case laws. I'll give you a little foreshadowing. Most translations, with the exception of, I think, the new English te- tra- translation or might be the common English, one of the new kind of Bibles that go for easy English uses the phrase case laws. Almost all Bibles use the phrase statutes or ordinances. And uh, so, um, but the word statutes, statutory law, are case laws. And we'll explain what that means next week. Amen.